folks, welcome back. This is Andy with the Poor Proles Almanac. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, and wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, you can find us on Patreon. If you're enjoying what we're doing here and you'd like to help us cover the costs of hosting the podcasts. We don't explicitly offer any of our traditional content focused on the specific goals of this podcast to our patrons in terms of limited access or anything like that right now. Knowledge is for everyone, but we have started up a Patreon-only mini-series called The Prologues, during which we'll do some critiques on various ecological subject matters. We've also included clips of this entire series up on the Patreon as well, so if you want to hear stuff from all of the episodes, go check it out. We've also released one episode that was asked for by popular demand for public consumption, so that's a good place to check it out. See if you'd like to hear more. On top of this content, we've got stickers available and we're including some footage from my farm putting the theory we're talking about into practice. So if you want to see what's going on over there, check out the Patreon. Any support we can get to offset our costs, we fully and wholeheartedly appreciate. We're also on Instagram and Facebook if you want to follow us over there, and we do have a Discord page for like-minded folks to chat. In this episode, we're talking with Peter Gelderloos. We chat a bit about his work, both Worshipping Power, his most recent book, as well as a book that's untitled that's coming up, focused on ecology, localization, and anarchy. In this conversation, we talk about the idea of what does democracy look like, and how does ecology play into that? Further, how can we look at how to decolonize communities while considering the challenges that global capitalism has wrought? We have a really great conversation, and unfortunately, Elliot wasn't able to join us. But Peter is one of those personalities that manages to fill a conversation, and his unique perspective and his in-depth knowledge on anarchist theory, history, and being able to research has given him the unique opportunity to dig deep on this subject matter and really explore indigenous projects in a way that I don't think anyone has ever done before. So if you're interested in the book that he talks about that he hasn't released yet, we'll be including some information about it as we find out more, and we do plan on having him on after the book is released to discuss it in a little bit more detail. So hopefully you guys enjoy this conversation. So, Peter, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us. Your book, How Nonviolence Protects the State, came out when I was in college, and it was hugely influential in my formation in my politics. Uh, so having you on now is really great to kind of see how you start to tie in a lot of those really important ecological components and some of these ideas that we've talked about on this podcast. So for folks that aren't familiar with your work, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? I'm, I'm an anarchist. Uh, I've participated in... Uh in social movements, uh, first where I grew up in Virginia, and since 2007 I've been living in, in Catalonia, uh, first in Barcelona and, and more recently in, um, in, in a smaller town in the same general area. Uh, so yeah, I, I basically just, um, as long as, as I've been able, just been par participating in, in different social movements uh, against, against capitalism, against, I mean, you know, any just all, all, all the social, <laughs> uh, against the, you know, the whole, this whole great big machine that's just uh, constantly, uh, making our life great. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. <laughs> you, know, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and, and also in, in the course of this, I've been uh, writing about, um, 
kind of like collective lessons from from my own experiences and those around me or like you know research into the uh, history of movements and stuff like that so uh yeah the first book that i wrote was how Nonviolence protects the state uh since then uh i've written an, another book uh that that also criticizes nonviolence within uh more recent uh movements like occupy the plaza um, occupation movement uh the arab spring the color revolutions etc that one's called the failure of nonviolence uh anarchy works looks at a lot of uh, examples of um self-organized societies or horizontal social movements in practice and let's see yeah i also did a book with uh, ak press uh worshiping power that looks at the evolution of of states uh how they evolve where they come from uh and also you know looking at like a long history of states states collapsing states falling apart and then and then coming back again if societies don't uh, organize themselves effectively against against that occurrence. So yeah, I, I tried to um, uh, make writings that are relevant and, and useful for uh, for social struggles, but also you know I'm very much interested in in history and other other questions. So. Yeah, I just read Worshiping Power pretty recently. I was really interested in particular around the idea of what you called proto agriculture, um, which is kind of this idea of not quite what we think of as traditional agriculture, but also not just completely a hunter-gatherer situation where people were managing the land for the benefit of people without it being an extensive, I'm planting 10 seeds of this, so I want to harvest 10 bushels of such and such thing, uh, which I think is a really interesting concept in that there is a passive understanding of our ability to manage the landscape without being detrimental to it. I know in the book, you at least talked about a couple of examples. Is that something that you, in your research, saw across the globe, or was it kind of a localized thing? Uh, well, I mean, there's you know, there's already the category of, of horticulture, of course, which which historically is is quite a stable practice. Like you know, plenty of societies, um, you know, were practicing horticulture for for thousands of years, oftentimes mixed with forms of hunting and gathering or, or herding. Um, until they were colonized, and even today, some societies, despite colonization and the imposition of of, of capitalism on food markets and all the rest, uh, still still you know carry out like horticultural practices or um, food forests, um, and, you know all all of these other practices that don't fit into like industrialized monocrop uh, farming. Um, Proto agriculture. I, I mean, I think like if if that's gonna uh, have have any meaning distinct from uh, from horticulture? Maybe it's in the in the framework of. Um, I mean, basically, history is often is often fed to us as this unilineal progress that inevitably goes from A to B to C to D, and we're you know, you know, somewhere very far into the alphabet by now, and you know, any people who are you know still at A or B. Uh, God forbid, you know, they're just uh, primitives who just, you know, haven't gotten with the program. And of course, that's an inherently white supremacist way of, of teaching history. Um, and history tends to be the history of states. Uh, people who are stateless don't matter un until they appear at the margins of the states so that they can be conquered. You know, they're, they're often successful resistance usually isn't, uh, isn't mentioned. And then many times that state subjects often with the help of uh, stateless peoples at the margin of states have overthrown states that that's kind of left out. It's kind of, you know, glossed over. It's like a, a dark ages. So, so basically, you know, we, we were taught like, you know, okay, you know, Mesopotamia, agriculture, civilization, states, as though we're this very 
inevitable and, and rapid uh, transition when in fact thousands of years went by. Um, and so it, the first big changes uh, that, that lead to, you know, what, what we would identify as, as agriculture. Um, I mean, some of course, you know, that especially ones that are maybe harder to, to capture in the archeological record would have been more than 12,000 years ago, but otherwise we're talking about things like, you know, 12, 10,000 years ago, but um, really like proto-states, like societies that are uh, developing more coercive hierarchies and more entrenched hierarchies, that's, that's uh, you know, coming up between, um, you know, more like 4,000 years ago, six, 4,000 years ago. And, and so you have, you know, thousands of years uh, in between. So you, you could look at uh, like, you know, sort of um, proto-agriculture as like these uh, spaces where, you know, different different innovations were were spreading regarding uh, the domestication of crops and irrigation and stuff like that. But people weren't necessarily locked in to one kind of agricultural practice that uh, in which um, monocrops tended to feature. And because the, I mean, the state really is is important there, if, if we're going to look at um, monocrop agriculture and especially ecological collapse, because around the same time, in fact really joined together in, in a sort of early world system, joined together through various networks of trade. You had the, um, the, the Indus Valley or the, the Harappan civilization um, around what's now uh, Pakistan and India. And you had the, the one that receives more attention in, in Western histories, uh, Mesopotamia. Um, it seems that with changing weather conditions and also, uh, you know, beginnings of soil failure or lower crop productivity because of just, you know, too much intensive agriculture, like the same crops over and over again for, for hundreds, if not thousands of years, um, the Harappan civilization actually decentralized their, their living patterns. They, they changed the territory they lived in, but they also changed the way they lived from larger concentrated cities to decentralized settlements. Um, and there's also a lot more evidence that they that they didn't have a state. So they were they were flexible. They were able to see like, oh, this isn't working out so well anymore. Uh, let's change our strategies. Let's live in a way that's more uh, ecologically compatible. Whereas by that point, uh, Mesopotamia already had um, a state and their uh, the soil pro uh, soil fertility was declining because they cut down all the trees. Uh, because their irrigation system was leading to salinization, crop yields were falling dramatically, uh, and in, and and people weren't free to um, to make any kind of change because they were state subjects, and the state needed an agricultural sub, uh, surplus uh, to tax as the basis of its of its economic wealth to feed its armies and so forth. So it actually legally required the farmers of Mesopotamia to double down on these ecologically destructive farming practices leading to uh in the southern part of mesopotamia leading leading to like a civilization collapse that i mean that basically continued until you know you have like a uh petroleum-based civilization that can you know basically feed people in the desert as it were uh so yeah that's, that's a really long answer but you know um i think it's 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 relevant to what we're facing today that states are not well suited to, to ecological collapse because they tend to provoke ecological collapse and they they tend to force people to continue the exact behaviors that caused uh, the crisis. Yeah, that sounds about about accurate. <laughs> um, it's an interesting idea that by consolidating, you would think the ability to consolidate power and resources would effectively provide the means to do things correctly, but it never really ever plays out that way. That's kind of um, 
I guess my personal biggest concern is that we're ill prepared for what's coming. Um, you know, as a, a farmer who knows a lot of people and like, you know, I, I have animals and, you know, we're already looking at in May, severe droughts, cutbacks. A lot of farmers are already culling animals that they wouldn't otherwise cull because they can't afford to feed them and water them. There's already warnings of hay shortages and like that, that happens, but never this early. And I, I, I feel like I'm constantly saying like, all of this is like the preamble. Like this is in 10 years, we're going to look back at what we're doing right now and say, man, those times are easy. And right now we're thinking, you know, this is weird. This is a hard year. And in the future, that's we're going to look back and just be like, if we'd only known how much worse it was going to get. That That's the thing with like agriculture is it's it's a compounding system that you don't feel the reverberations and the reverberations tend to be much stronger than that initial impact. And that's been kind of a, a driving force in trying to uh, articulate a, a meaningful platform for me, at least on the left of saying, okay, we need to start thinking about like, if we all agree that capitalism is doing all these awful things and that it's unsustainable, then what are we planning to do afterwards? And that that's where people start to get, I think, a little uncomfortable is trying to have that conversation. Uh, but I think you've done a really good job of that in a lot of your work. And um, that brings me to your new book that you're working on. Uh, I, I know you don't have a name for it yet, but I know you've been working hard on it and it ties a lot of these ideas together. Uh, could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it's it's an attempt to uh, approach the ecological crisis in an anti-colonial and anti-capitalist framework. And, and so that means uh, doing a lot of specific things when talking about the problem and talking about potential solutions that usually aren't done in all of the literature that's being churned out about the problem, largely from academics or like, um, you know, some celebrity activists in the mix. Uh, and then, you know, in addition to economists and, um, uh, you know, people connected, you know, you know, to the agricultural industry, bankers, whatever, like, you know, people who are, you know, often very, very close to the problem, uh, to, to put it politely. So first off, it's not reducing it to climate change. Uh, the world is is an incredibly complex, interconnected being, and things like um, uh, habitat loss and extinctions and human migrations and changing changing human social models uh, are all tied together with questions of uh, uh, greenhouse gas emissions, global warming, and the ability. Of, I mean, global warming is already here, uh, and so there's also the huge question of um, of living communities' resilience to global warming. And so resilience means migration, uh, uh, for example, of both human and non-human species, which means borders come into the mix. Um, resilience also means uh, that the people who best, most intimately know a territory and the people who have uh, uh, developed methods of feeding themselves in in a territory in a way that gives life to that territory rather than sucking it dry and 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 pumping the water full of uh full of polluting chemicals uh need to be front and center and need to to have the power to to practice those methods to uh to deploy that knowledge to share it and so that connects directly to uh to decolonization to uh, supporting indigenous peoples getting their land back, not just decolonization as the newest buzzword that all the academics are putting in their writing 
paying a little bit of lip service, but not actually talking about the abolition of settler states, not actually talking about getting physical land back to um, to indigenous communities, certainly not talking about the many um, uh, the many indigenous people who are in prison for for fighting for resisting and you know other other forms of repression uh, from from man camps to um, you know the various forms of delegitimization that happen in uh, you know in the academy and the you know the official producers of knowledge the media and so forth. Um, so so yeah, it's it's uh, it's a complex issue. So treating it like a complex issue and not falling into climate reductionism. Uh, it also means um, uh, really challenging the official narratives and and like the official forms of knowledge about the problem. Uh, so for example, not accepting the dichotomy between humans and nature. Humans are a part of nature, whether we want to be or not, and acting like we're not has led to serious problems. And that it's just, it's a failed, um, a failed philosophical framework that needs to be abandoned. Um, also, the uh, uh, I mean, you know, industrial agriculture and and from their capitalism, these are failed systems. Like it's it's ridiculous to continue talking about them as like well, you know, like uh, like this is really successful. Like uh, you know, I mean, industrial agriculture, like you know, it's 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 real. It exists. It's implanted across the globe, but it's it, it has failed and it's in its death throes. And just because for now. Um, enough people, you know, according to whose criteria also is a big question, enough people are, are getting fed by this, uh, doesn't, you know, that doesn't take away the fact that it's failed, that it's destroyed soil all over the world, that it's created dead zones in, in the oceans and lakes uh, of the world. And that while we continue to have food surpluses around the world, you still have tens of millions of people without adequate food. So it's, it's a failed system. Um, and we just need to be realistic about that rather than continuing to play footsie with with the various governments with you know see if this oil company or that chemical company will you know go green and and um, clean up their image so you know we can also get invited to to you know the uh, various climate summits along with the NGOs and all the rest like that's that's just it's ridiculous and I'd, I'd say it's it's um it's suicidal like uh not recognizing what are the, the structures and institutions that are responsible for the problem, continuing to, uh, to dialogue with them and to grant them uh, that legitimacy, and then not looking at all of the very real struggles that exist all over the world on every continent that are incredibly intelligent, that have real answers, and whose, whose only limitation, whose only obstacle is the repression they face. The fact that when we fight for the defense of the earth and not, you know, nature is some distant separate concept, but you know, the earth that we're a part of and, and fight for our own healthy place in it, we get labeled as terrorists. Um, we get locked up in jail uh, in a lot of countries around the world. Um, they're, you know, that straight up death squads or, or military or, or private armies that are hired by oil companies will bomb villages and kill people. Um, and then on the other hand, you know, you have NGOs, that that help legitimize that kind of repression in a way by you know silencing the competitors who use you know actual direct action who are talking about you know empowering communities taking back their land and feeding themselves without the need for charity without the need for uh you know spokespeople going to to paris or copenhagen or whatever to you know speak for them at some global conference um and i mean one thing that that i kind of like uh do you mind these really long answers? Because no, you're no. I mean, I'm like taking <laughs> notes. I'm like taking notes because I've like there's so many things you said that I want to unpack. But like, keep going. 
Okay, great. <laughs> so one one thing that that I kind of really was struck by in my research. So you probably know uh, what is it? A uh, Global Witness, I think, is the name of the NGO, and there are others that that count the number of land defenders killed every year. So you know this is you know a category that has you know some legitimacy. Land defenders, people defending the land, the water, and so forth, and how many are getting getting murdered every year. Uh, directly or indirectly by companies like Coca-Cola, Shell Oil, Nike, and so on and so forth. Uh, and, and there's another link to make also uh, labor organizing because, you know, that's all that often actually has a direct connection uh, through environmental racism, through the environmental impacts that poor people face, and then also all the different forms of pollution that happen in the workplace. And the fact that a lot of the same paramilitary and repressive structures that are killing land defenders are also killing union organizers. Uh, especially in places like uh, Colombia, um, uh, Brazil, uh, Bangladesh, Indonesia, really all, all around the world. Um, and now there's an interesting thing. When you look at these reports about all the thousands of land defenders that are, that are getting uh, murdered around, around the world for these capitalist interests or because of these capitalist interests, they'll often you know, put in a little, um, a little, a little footnote that um, the numbers don't really represent what's happening in Africa. And they don't have a lot of, uh, a lot of data from Africa. Uh, and, and that kind of just kind of often sneaks by within, within this, this very you know, white supremacist, anti-black uh, colonial mindset of you know, Africa is like the dark continent. Like there just aren't you know, even any NGOs in Africa, so they really can't, um, you know, there's just not, the, the information doesn't exist about, um, about those deaths. And, uh, and so it's just, you know, people just kind of permit that it's just kind of, you know, kind of left in the gray. It's just, you know, not that information, that data isn't really filled in. But, but in fact, I mean, there's a huge NGO implantation in Africa and, you know, there's media all across Africa. Like, you know, when people are dying there, the deaths are being counted. But the problem from the perspective of these NGOs doing the counting is that uh, a, lot of, uh, a lot of territories in Africa have not yet been... Um, colonized adequately enough to use this sort of framework of civil society, right? So, because in, in, I mean, take Colombia, um, I mean, you know, certainly not to romanticize any of the, the guerrilla movements there, although, you know, uh, hands down, they're not nearly as, as bloodthirsty as the paramilitaries. But like in, in a situation like that, you know, you, you do have cases where like, you know, uh, uh, people in, in a village might arm themselves or they might, you know, look for the assistance of um of one of these uh armed groups to protect them from the paramilitaries um so if one of those people gets killed you know then they're not that's not a land defender that's getting added to the list of people killed even though the effect is the same to allow people in in the community to to protect their commons to keep the forest from getting cut down and so on and so forth um so in in certain territories in africa that distinction is is harder to track because these these categories of, of civil society and and you know the proper like you know peaceful NGO activism filing a petition and so forth uh, hasn't been hasn't been um, as effectively implanted as much. So, for example, if you look at the the oil producing territories in in Nigeria, they you know they had their peaceful campaign back in the nineties uh, with uh, Ken Sarawiwa and others getting executed for their activism. Uh, the Ogani people, the Ija people, initially peacefully protesting against the, the immense devastation caused by oil extraction and just getting killed. 
like either the Nigerian military or private militaries that work for the oil companies, just bombing villages and opening opening fire on crowds with machine guns. Um, I mean, people aren't stupid. Like you know, everywhere it happens, you know, they're they're told to be peaceful by the government that you know exercises this monopoly on violence. They're told to be peaceful. And when they realize that that's that's you know that's just a scam that that's you know part of how governments maintain power so they can continue to exploit us, they learn and they develop different tactics. Uh, and in, for example, especially the Ija regions of Nigeria, those tactics have included forming militias that directly shut down the oil industry, uh, that kidnap these extremely high-paid uh, European and North American oil workers and and ransom them. I mean, that's direct reparations. That's getting money directly from the companies and, and countries that, you know, that have been exploiting them for, for centuries and, you know, getting that money where it's needed. And so that, you know, of course, uh, the U.S. government and and I think, you know, the British and Dutch governments as well have been helping with weapons and training and stuff like that to, to put an end to this insurgency against the oil industry. And that's meant, again, machine gunning crowds, bombing villages and so on and so forth. And those those people aren't counted as as land defenders. So that, I think, also needs to be pointed out. So it's not I mean, the you know, the right wing paramilitaries and the major corporations and all that, like they um they they obviously you know need to be um, uh, pointed out for you know for the butchers that they are and as one of the main forces that's preventing these decentralized localized solutions to the ecological crisis and and to the crisis of capitalism but we also can't forget the role that the institutional left and the NGOs and the universities and the academics play in yeah. in the whole in the whole crisis so yeah, yeah so that's that also is in the book. So you brought up a couple of really good subject matters that I wanted to talk about. The the most I think so the I guess you would want to say the the biometric opposite of this very physical colonialism that you're talking about. Uh, you you talked about like the academy. I want to talk a little bit about that ancestral knowledge that um you know that colonialism has worked to wipe off the earth essentially. In doing a lot of research on these indigenous farming practices and agricultural systems, if you want to call them agricultural systems, things like coppicing, pollarding, pastoralism, so much of it has been erased to the point where there's a very uh, concerted effort to try to rediscover a lot of these practices. And to me, the there's a really big problem in this whole situation. Like, it obviously is awful, but also because of climate change, um, going back to a lot of that ancestral knowledge might not always be the solution because the ecologies have been so decimated. You know, the idea that we could, you know, in, in an ideal world that if everyone agreed to go back to a hunter gatherer society or whatever, the we've degraded the landscape so much that even if we meant well, the landscape couldn't handle that kind of capacity. And in the same way, in these places that we've pillaged and destroyed the ecology of, we can't just flip a switch and say, we're going to do things uh, you know, we're going to do things the right way. We're going to give that land back and give that stewardship back. Um, it, we're in this weird place where it, even if that's what we try to do, I don't know if that's enough. Uh, so I, I kind of wanted to know your thoughts on um, that, that ancestral knowledge component and how we can pair that with the fact that the, these ecologies have been so decimated. Um, I'm not sure like which... like. Uh... Like, I, I don't feel, you know, qualified to make any kind of generalization about which territories have had their uh, their ancestral knowledges uh, decimated. Sure. I mean, I don't mean any specific one, but just kind of, sure. 
like definitely there are places where, where that's that's the case and that's that's a big problem and it's its own unique kind of problem uh while i was doing research for the book um what i was coming across more and more were were places where there are actually from like uh brazil to venezuela to to indonesia uh to even here in in the spanish states like in, in you know around the pyrenees where there are actually holdouts of ancestral knowledge that like anyone who you know grows up in the in the mainstream of the society will be unaware that that knowledge still exists and and you know it's it's constantly being being suppressed and, and silenced uh but it is still there and there are a lot of uh initiatives for for recovering it and so the the other uh so i think that's really important to like you know first look and see you know to, to what extent it really has been uh obliterated or if it's just um you know being being silenced and pushed out of the mainstream and, and then supporting it coming back uh, the the other big point that that you were raising about you know whether it will be enough because conditions have changed so much, um, that's that's where I think it's important to point out that uh, these ancestral or traditional more ecocentric knowledge systems, um, I think, are not symmetrical with capitalist knowledge systems because capitalist knowledge systems tend to have an utter disregard for the for the territory and they basically take a template and they impose it on the territories that were just like an inert uh an inert space just a map to be filled out by their own design whereas traditional knowledge systems tend to be more uh, uh methods of of dialogue so it's not like ignore what you find and then just plant these things but the the knowledge system itself is more about dialoguing with what you find dialoguing with the other the other life forms that are there and helping them tell you uh, what they need and what you can share and what you can create together. So, so I think on that level, they are in fact um, inherently uh, way better suited to the fact of changing conditions, to uh, to for example desertification and and habitat loss and all the rest. And and one example that that demonstrates that is uh, is fire suppression. So of course, uh, out of control um, uh, forest fires are are a huge problem. Uh, like a major facet of, um, of of climate change, they're connected to uh, major droughts and and heat waves that you know that are really unprecedented. And so, in that sense, like you know, it's like this kind of this new problem, um, like you mentioned. Um, however, it's it's the ancestral uh, systems that are proven best adapted to that. Even though they're dealing with with situations that are in effect new, uh, their their methods are. Are in fact better better suited to deal with that. So it's that goes from um, uh, you know restoring the ability of indigenous communities to take the lead with um, uh, with I really don't like the you know the word management, but you know what what they're called forest management. But basically like uh, an ecosystemic relationship with forests uh, on the west coast of North America, uh, you know generally territory occupied by the by the United States. Uh, where there have been catastrophic wildfires. Um, also, where I live uh, in uh, in the Spanish state in in Europe, in the area of the the, the Pyrenees, um, traditional pastoral uh, techniques are are making a comeback, and there's an increasing number of people, and they never completely went away. So there were some holdouts, but now it's something that's that's growing again, and they're using traditional pastoral techniques to um make the forests healthier again and then you know we're in an area that's facing a lot of desertification but they're making the forests healthier again and more resistant to uh to the catastrophic forest fires that that 
are going to present a huge danger over the next few decades. So I think when you consider that it's more about um, dialogue and adaptability and, and creating relationships than just kind of like a set template that you impose in the territory, I would, I would argue that, um, that, yeah, that, that, that traditional knowledge systems uh, still have a leg up. And that points to, I think, uh, I guess, the, you know, there's this, like you said, this indigenous movement going on globally of this, like, reclaiming of some of these practices. And con uh, concurrently, we also have got, like, uh, like regenerative agriculture and permaculture that have been building, and they've really built a lot of momentum in the last couple decades. And it's almost like this right wing versus this left wing response to this, because permaculture is much more of that plug and play. The same thing with regenerative agriculture. There's this whole business model of uh, rewarding instructors that don't do the practice versus it, I think in a lot of more indigenous practices, it's people that do the work and um, there's no intent to uh, globalize the practice, but own the local ecology in, in a way that only people that have uh, experienced it can do. So is, is that something that you spent some time thinking about or talking about in your book or researching uh, like around this idea of like permaculture and how that's either been a positive or a negative effect on some of these practices? Um, it's definitely something I've, I've thought about. I don't um, specifically go into permaculture in the book just because I was up against a word limit and, uh, and there's so many things that I wanted to deal with. And like, I don't know enough specifically about the history of, of permaculture like as and, and where it developed. Uh, I mean, my understanding is that it, it developed largely in Australia, which is, of course, a, a problematic country. I mean, I think um, I think you can globalize the idea of of living through your relationships with other life forms, both human and non-human life forms, and and realizing that they you know that they have have worthwhile things to teach you. And I mean, I've known people who have benefited from learning uh, permaculture that that's, that's, uh, you know, helped them, help them, you know, kind of in on, on that path. And then other cases where it's just the latest, you know, green business where, you know, people are, you know, selling degrees in it or, you know, selling designs and they are largely like, you know, coming out of like, uh, you know, sort of imposing a kind of manual design on a territory that they don't uh, listen to very much. So that's, that's something that I've been thinking about a lot in, in the gardening that I do here where I live, where it's, I started off um, kind of occupying a plot of land that was very damaged from, you know, too, too many years of, of bad agricultural practices. And, you know, I've just, it's kind of like, curiously, I've, I've been taking it slowly in the sense of like, you know, I didn't go in there with like the very first year, like, you know, I'm going to like, you know, grow this many kilos of, of vegetables and, um, you know, become self-sufficient. Uh, but rather going, you know, seeing what's working, seeing what's what's needed. So in that sense, going slow, but at the same time with this urgency of, of recognizing that desertification is, is a big problem here. And, you know, like you mentioned with with where you are, like, you know, the drought already happening in May, there are already being hay shortages in May. People who aren't preparing now and people who aren't learning how to how to, you know, feed themselves in other ways now are going to be in, in you know, big trouble in, in 10 to 20 years. Um, and in just the, I guess I've been living where I am now, like, uh, something like six years, six or seven years. And so I've had the, this garden plot that long. And just in that amount of time, I've seen, um, really big changes to like the, the health of the soil, how well the soil retains water, 
how long I, you know, that like other people who do, you know, the more conventional garden style in the same area, you know, in the summer when like, it's really, really hot, they have to water their tomatoes every day. And you know how I can, you know, water them like twice a week, little things like that, that, uh, you know, can, you know, at a certain point spread and, and, you know, make, make a big difference. Yeah. So I, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't write off permaculture, but I would basically just like you said, you know, encourage people to be aware of those potential pitfalls. Sure. So in terms of your garden, I want to talk a little bit about um, how we can think about utilizing uh, our ability to grow food and utilizing that as a way to do outreach and trying to build community and um, trying trying to really pro uh, provide a model of what we want the future to look like. Uh, is that something you've been able to do with your project or is this more of a, just a, a, a personal thing that you do for yourself? Um, a little bit. I'm, I'm working on a very small scale. It's, it's not, um, it's not a huge thing. So beyond sharing with, with friends, it doesn't, uh, uh, like I don't, I don't have enough fruits and vegetables coming out of there to like, you know, really, you know, bring, bring a lot of abundance to the table and, and, you know, kind of like serve as a, a stepping stone that's like a really, you know, useful model to other people. And also one thing that's interesting is just how, how people have been like really like rigidly trained in like, you know, what's, what's correct and what's not. And just how much conventional gardening gardening will train people to like see a garden as more ecosystemic and just completely dismiss it as like, you know, oh, no, that's just like a jungle or that's all weeds or whatever. Um, without even, you know, taking the time to find out like, you know, well, actually how many tomatoes and how much squash is actually coming out of this garden versus this one that's more aesthetically pleasing to me. And that's interesting because that also came, something similar anyways, came up in, in one of the interviews I did with a, with a comrade from Venezuela, how once like, the, the U.S. embargo was really intensified on Venezuela and, you know, people were really facing like a situation of hunger and, you know, the you know, news stories about the long lines outside of the supermarkets and everything like that. But at the same time, in the countryside in Venezuela, there, there was like a huge amount of food that people just weren't eating because it wasn't supermarket food. It basically, in, in like paraphrasing the words of the, of the interviewee, it wasn't, it wasn't white person food. And Venezuela during, during the economic boom from oil exploitation was like the Venezuelan middle class was being sold this idea that, you know, that they could become white and they could become first world through these oil profits and by living like North Americans or Europeans do, buying processed starchy white foods in the supermarkets. And so, you know, all of these, all these like amazing, uh, often like, you know, root crops and other, other foods that, you know, don't appear in the supermarkets that just wasn't considered food because it wasn't white people food. Uh, so that's, I mean, that's, that's a huge, a huge deal and like a really big, um, uh, thing to consider. But so basically the, going back to your question, the example that, that I do want to look at is something that happens fairly often in the region where I live, where it, um, Basically, capitalism and the state tend to simplify things. And so, you know, they have a huge amount of power and resources, but there's also a lot of power that they don't have. And they tend to really lack local knowledge. They're on the ground, they really have to simplify things. And they're just, they're never able to access the, the more complex knowledge that, that people on the ground are, are able to access. And so one of, one of the consequences of that is just, you know, how, how, how much economic uh, schemes simplify things. Uh, they tend to um, focus on just a, a few crops in any given territory. And so where I'm living now, like in the, in the age of the European Union, has not been um, centered, like uh, identified as like a region for like major extensive olive oil production. 
even though the climate is perfect for olive oil and there's there's thousands upon thousands of olive trees growing here because back in the day everyone made their own olive oil of course um so that means a lot of abandoned olive trees so that's a project that uh, a lot of people uh, a lot of different people do uh you know there are specifically anarchist initiatives that do it and there's just other common sense initiatives of taking over these abandoned olive orchards if you know if the the legal owner is around since you know they're not huge companies getting in contact and making sure it's okay maybe giving them like one-tenth of the oil or one-fifth of the oil or something and if there's no oil around just uh, if there's no owner around just just doing it uh you know harvesting the olives in november december uh pruning the trees in 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 march and then you know having like huge amounts of like basically the kind of olive oil that's like so so good under the capitalist economy only rich people are supposed to get it but you know we're talking about like poor people who who just like get together and do a lot of hard work a few days a year and then have just like a huge amount of like really high quality healthy non-processed olive oil that they can share throughout all their networks that's awesome. and and so that yeah that's a really inspiring example that that anyone can see the usefulness of and it makes a really good argument against the uh, the current conventional way of doing things so my family's from italy southern italy uh my parents back over there they used to have like communes or collective style cooperatives that collected all the oil and things like that but a lot of that was still kind of exported because you know it was a, a large government sponsored cooperative so you know even though they had access to all of these things they didn't usually see much of the benefit of it you know it gets lost like like a lot of those types of organizations do, you know, that's always been my personal, like I love olive oil, I love olive trees, grapevines. That's like my homeland. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but uh, yeah, that, that's super cool. Um, has that been something that you've seen uh, as something that they've, people have used as a, a way to, I guess, to use a phrase, hold an olive branch out to try to build uh, networks with anarchists and other groups? Well, for example, there's uh, in in Catalonia, there's an initiative of like different, uh, like what we identify as infrastructure projects, but like radical infrastructure, anti-capitalist infrastructure projects, uh, get together and uh, you know create create links, create relationships, and also in a lot of cases directly share what they're what they're creating, whether that's uh, olive oil or you know things from their gardens, or you know you also have things like free schools and pirate radios and um, print shops and stuff like that. So really all of all the kind of projects that, um, that allow us to, to create something that allow us to materialize the ideas of, of solidarity and mutual aid uh, coming together sort of with this horizon of, of moving towards a gift economy. So they, uh, that might be an example of what you're, uh, what you're asking about. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that's something I feel like uh, in the age of the internet and social media, a little bit goes a long way. And conversely, there's a lot of, articulations around the idea of trying to do you know real meaningful projects outreach and things like that but it that stuff seems to stay on the internet and never really make it out very often it, it's just it's a really weird time right now there's so much activity in terms of the internet and then you've got capitalism co-opting a lot of these uh, movements whether it's black lives matter or permaculture things like the ecology continue to degrade despite you know, everyone knowing that it's a problem. And, you know, it all points to the fact that this machine just churns on no matter what we're doing and uh, that we're really just kind of living on borrowed time in a lot of ways. So to kind of tie all this, I guess, back together, 
do you think all these things are happening at once coincidentally or do you think this is like the system subconsciously being aware that like we're we're uh over the cliff we're like bugs uh, not, Ki- uh wily coyote we're over the cliff and still running we just haven't looked down yet and they know it's there or is this just like capitalism doing what it does and trying to co-opt even the most you know uh, smallest thing uh, i think capitalism uh systematically uh, co-ops whatever it can. And so I think that would be happening regardless. But I think uh, the fact that all of these these crises are kind of um, uh, coming to a crescendo uh, right now is not a coincidence, just just because all of these different systems are interrelated. And, and I think that's how complex systems tend to change, not through like, you know, one one cause of, of collapse uh, or, or, or crisis and then transformation. But um, every, everything just kind of tends to shake and, and vibrate all together. And, sure. and the different crises are mutually reinforcing. Yeah. So do you think there's a, a moment of bifurcation that's coming soon? Or um, is, is that like still 10, 20 years down the road? Um, I guess 10, 20 years down the road feels like, like soon to me. That feels like a, like a close timeline just because of like the magnitude of the kinds of changes that that are going to happen and they could be very, very bad changes or they could be uh, very um, emancipatory changes. Uh, so, I mean, I think, I think like the, the global system that exa- exists now is coming to a point where it is um, going to have to make major changes if it wants to survive. And like, let's say like, let's put it like, you know, from like now, cause some of those changes are already happening to like uh, 50 years down the, down the road. Um, but like all of it, all of it right now is like extremely relevant, different proposals for what kind of changes uh, capitalism and, and dominant state models are going to try to make are, are already on the table. Uh, maybe the like the eventual proposal might not have appeared yet, but it's it's certainly being formulated and it's, um, you know, a lot of its elements are already being aired. And then on the other hand, uh, what we're going to do from below to to try to write our own futures, to write our own destinies. Uh, you know, that's already definitely being prefigured. That's already being debated. Um, and unfortunately, you're going to see a lot more authoritarianism come up in in social movements as people look for quick fixes. So I think a lot of like the most um, uh, intelligent uh, solutions to the crises of, of capitalism, of democracy and and uh, of you know, well, the ecology uh, are already at the very least in a nascent form. They're already out there. Uh, and we're, you know, we're coming, we're at the at the end of two decades in which social movements across the world have been uh, overwhelmingly uh, decentralized um, and, and anti-authoritarian. And, and, you know, that's, that's, if you know, if you know how to look at them, that's been their strength. Um, But we're coming up on a period in which uh, potentially quite quickly authoritarianisms will crop up in these movements um, because because they're going to get more resources because the state and capitalism are always going to favor uh, authoritarian movements that they can dialogue with, that, that they're more symmetrical with over anti-authoritarian ones that are completely controlled from below um, because people are getting desperate because it's scary to live in these times. And we're trained to think that, you know, states have some kind of magic wand that, that they can wave to make things better. And we know we don't have a magic wand, but we think that maybe up there they might have one. They've got all the money, so. 
Yeah, I mean, which is why so many people are supporting the Green New Deal, even though the Green New Deal uh, makes things worse. The Green New Deal uh, and and you know similar proposals of you know creating all this financing for uh, renewable energies, they're creating a huge market for like a, a worldwide land grab, which is going to be the death of of countless uh, indigenous and peasant communities around the world. Uh, and it's going to be like a, it's going to mean like a, a huge infrastructural boom and a major mining boom, which is going to destroy more habitats, lead to a lot more extinctions. And renewable energies on uh, industrial scale are are extremely devastating. They're extremely bad for the environment, and people don't want to look at that right now because that's their quick fix. Yeah, we don't have to change the way we live. We just have to have a couple more solar panels, whatever. So I mean, like the the. Like there, it's urgent because it's already happening right now. Um, you know, millions of people are already dying every year right now because of these crises. Like it's already here, but we're also looking at different shifts that are that are going to be occurring over the next century, right? So we need to take it very seriously. But that doesn't mean we need to think that we need to solve this thing in five years because like the the various ramifications that that you know that, that are rippling all throughout the globe are going to be going on in a very, very intense way for like at least the next hundred years. And, and everything that we, that we do that's in the right direction is going to, is going to help. It's going to make things better. So nothing's, nothing's futile. And again, like a lot of the solutions are already here. A lot of uh, really amazing struggles are already stopping pipelines. They're already recovering forests, true forests, not forestry plantations, which the NGOs and, and the government trees are unable to distinguish between intentionally because tree plantations are, are economically profitable, uh, even though they're, you know, they're the exact opposite of, of forests. Um, people are already recovering food sovereignty and, and spreading these, these traditional forms of knowledge about, about how we can feed ourselves uh, in relation with other, other life forms rather than at the expense of other life forms. Um, so it's already going on. We need, to, we need to look at them. We need to support them. We need to visibilize them. Um, you know, from from the the uh, tiny house warriors in um, uh, sorry for the uh, my bad pronunciation Sequipemec uh, territory uh, occupied by Canada to people fighting against the oil industry in uh, Nigeria to uh, informal settlement dwellers who you know build their own homes and and are and are fighting you know together with their with their gardens you know against the landlords against the police in in South Africa. Uh, long after apartheid has, has ended, but you know you have you know just the latest iterations of new colonial uh, neocolonialism, uh, people people fighting in Indonesia against palm oil plantations, which you know palm oil is super useful for biofuels, you know green green fuel source, and it's just yeah. destroying destroying the forest there. Um, uh, the the Zad, which stopped an airport in uh, in France. And led to a proliferation of of many other zads, many other land occupations, uh, but that unfortunately, um, uh, you know, was was put to an end because people there on the zad were also they weren't just stopping an airport; they were looking at completely different ways of living, and and for several years they succeeded, but unfortunately that was put to an end by those who chose to dialogue with the politicians and dialogue with the police one more time. Um, but so there's there's things happening. Uh, all across the world, which are extremely inspiring and extremely intelligent. Um, and that, you know, the limitation, like people, you know, academics will always come along and say, oh, but this can't scale up. This sure as hell can scale up if people are doing it in every community. That would be way more effective than, you know, the solar panels and wind farms and, and, and you know, various forms of, um, of geoengineering, which will, the, you know, they're being debated, which will be very profitable. But 
you know, they, they can scale up. Their limitation is not an inherent limitation. The limitation is that on the one hand, people shoot at us or jail us when we do these things. And on the other hand, the academics come along and say, this can't scale up. Or, uh, you know, they, they, they make sure that all the resources get to, uh, you know, like a big wind farm or, sure. um, yeah. 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 And, um, you know, I think that points to uh, a really important thing that I, I don't think gets talked about enough in general on the left is that when we talk about these types of projects, we really need to understand that when we talk about saving the landscape and building these decentralized systems, that we, we have to understand that there's a, a very physical work component that comes with it. And this is something I feel like, uh, you know, there's this idea of like automation and like that we're going to have all this free time. And I, I don't think that's really the answer. And I think it, it in a lot of ways perpetuates a lot of the problems of our system where we're, we're still churning materials into goods through massive mechanization when in reality it's these types of hands-on things that we can do working with our ecology and each other that are so important in not only saving the economy ecology because we're working with it with our hands and we're seeing it like you said this our economic system simplifies a lot of these things because of the fact that it, it makes more financial sense to do that and to ignore the nuance of communities and what they can offer. Uh, but we, we have the opportunity with our, you know, our hands and our fingers and our toes to see what's going on in the landscape and to, to be a part of it. You had talked about the duality of humans uh, and nature and that humans are a part of nature. Um, so many different communities, you know, across the globe have historically never had a term for things like nature or town because, that you know that's like having a term for you know existence itself like there was no there was no outside of it that they could comprehend so why would there be a word for it uh and it, that kind of mentality i think is so important to start bringing back to these conversations that's how we can improve the environment now something you had spoken about a little bit before as well this idea that we can either contribute to make a better environment or we can be destructive and i think there's an assumption that our best case scenario is that we don't destroy things more and that kind of misses the point of us within a complex system uh, i'm just i'm super happy to see that ecology is taking a much more meaningful place in a lot of these conversations uh you know we can i don't want to pick on bookchin but he he paints in very broad strokes about both the role of technology and mechanization and ecology in a way that i think is it's helpful to get people to start thinking in those terms but he doesn't do much more than that. And uh, for a lot of people, that's kind of where it's like, okay, we've talked about it. We, we recognize that it's important, but there's, there's so much more nuance that goes into it in terms of these ideas like complex systems, humanity in nature, the role of that indigenous knowledge and localizing these systems and looking at all these pieces that if we just look at what nature does and like how nature focuses on making things more efficient, and we can be a part of that if we're smart enough to see what our place is and to lift up the things that help further make those systems resilient. So, you know, I'm just I'm super happy to see what, what's going on, uh, the projects that you're working on. If people are interested in your work or they want to see more or hear more, do you I know we uh, chatted a bit on Twitter. Do you have any other social media or I know you've got the book coming out. Where can people find it? Yeah, no, no, no social media besides the Twitter. Um, um, a large part of my writing is available for free on theanarchistlibrary.org. 
And the book, uh, the book will, uh, should be coming out at the very beginning of next year from Pluto Press. Um, yeah. Awesome. Cool. Well, Peter, thanks so much. This was great. As always, if you enjoyed this episode, please give us a review on iTunes, which heavily impacts our outreach to new listeners and helps us bring on new and exciting guests. We appreciate your support, and we hope you enjoyed this conversation.